All right, all right. If you wouldn't mind finding a seat, that'd be awesome. If you have a bulletin with you, you can grab that and take it out now. Um, it's good to see you all today, the last Sunday of the year at Grace Community Church. Uh, we will not be having church the Sunday after Christmas, so uh, this is our final Sunday of the year. Uh, we will have one more service at 4 p.m. on Christmas Eve on Friday here at the church, so just be aware that if you are uh, giving at the end of this year, uh, you have this service and Christmas Eve to give. Um, if we get anything in the mail before January 1st, it will count on this year. But if you have any year-end giving uh, you're looking to contribute to the church, uh, this Sunday or Christmas Eve are the times to do it, all right? All right. I just wanted to say thank you to all of those of you who've given to Grace Community Church this year. Um, uh, we're ending the year in a strong financial position, and that is uh, due to two things. One, it's due to God's faithfulness, and two... It's due to your faithfulness and listening to God, right? And so we're so thankful for that. Even amid uh, doing uh, pretty significant renovations to our kids' spaces, uh, we were able to, hopefully, all things considered, follow through to the, the last two weeks. Hey, Elliot and Nora, don't do those up there. Thanks. Um, th those aren't toys we're doing in the front row. Uh, but we just wanted to say thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, it's incredible to be uh, to lead a generous church, and that's a wonderful gift uh, for me. So uh, other than that, the only real announcement we have this week is that tonight uh, our Grace Youth Kids are having a Christmas party. It's going to be fun. Uh, Andrew's back there saying, Andrew, I think you're getting a game, right? You're in charge of a game tonight. We are in charge of one game, and so it's going to be tremendous. Andrew's going to knock it out of the park. Uh, uh, I just want to take a second and um, speak positively of my wife in public. Uh, she, uh, she's done a tremendous job uh, with our youth. Yeah, you can give her a round of applause. We've had anywhere between like 17 and 12 kids nightly on Sunday nights here at Grace uh, at, for a youth group, and it's just been a real blessing to the life of our church and to the life of children in, this, uh, in our community. The bulk of the kids come from the neighborhood surrounding the church, and that's awesome. That's awesome. So, all right, all right. I think that's all for announcements. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Our reading for today is from Luke chapter 1 verses 39 through 56. A few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. And Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. The Mighty One is holy, and He has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear Him. 
His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made his promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his children forever. Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then went back to her hometown. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be in church together a week, less than a week before Christmas, which is unbelievable to me. It feels like two days ago, uh, it was August, and I was just looking forward to raking an incredible amount of leaves out of my yard. And now, it's Christmas, and uh, we're so excited to be together as a church and to be celebrating uh, Christmas together on Christmas Eve at uh, in just a couple days. But this text here from Luke's gospel is a fascinating little story. I actually, when I read it, I find it to be just a beautiful story of these two women in relationship together who basically have a, a piece of knowledge that almost no one else has. This beautiful story is of Mary, the mother of Jesus, going to see her relative, Elizabeth. Now, part of the reason this story, I think, is so beautiful is that these two women are quite different, aren't they? They're at totally different phases of life. Mary is young, possibly between the ages of 14 and 18 years old, and she's pregnant. And Elizabeth, who is supposed to be past the age of being able to give birth, is also pregnant herself. Both women know that the babies they are carrying are significant, not only because of the miraculous way that they were both conceived, but because Elizabeth's child is going to be the last great prophet of Israel. We talked about him a couple weeks ago, John the Baptist. He would be a, another Elijah who would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And Mary is carrying the Messiah himself, the coming king, the one about who the whole story of the Old Testament and all of history had been building. These two women stand together at the precipice of history, and they're the only two that know it. And yet they're together. Now, uh, as these women meet together at the edge of history, and only, again, only they are the, only those two really know what's going to happen. Zachariah knows, but he's been made mute because he didn't believe. And so while he knows, he can't really say anything. Mary and Elizabeth uh, stand at the, at the precipice of history, but they also stand at the head of of a, a long line of Old Testament women, uh, the women that God used powerfully throughout the redemption story of the people of Israel to bring about his purposes, women like Miriam and Deborah and Judith and Hannah, all of these women, those four women I just named, just like Mary, sing a song of praise to God. You know, this song that Mary sings is often referred to as the Magnificant, if you're familiar with that. It's a Latinization of the word uh, magnify, basically. And it comes from the very first sentence of that passage where Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. It's this beautiful song of praise, but also of 
it's a prophetic song that, that kind of casts out into the future and sets up for, the, for us, the reader, what the ministry of Jesus is going to look like. Mary is pregnant with this miraculous child, and people are going to be impacted by him. But before that ever happens, Mary sings a song about all of the things that God is going to do in the world because of this child. Now, interestingly enough, this song that Mary sings here, while it sets up the whole of Luke's project of telling the story of Jesus and telling the story of the early church, there is resonance, if you ever read Luke and Acts together, there's resonance in what Mary says here, not only with the song of Hannah, if you remember who Hannah was, uh, she was the woman who was barren and prayed to the Lord that she would have a child, and she eventually uh, has the, I don't have it in my notes, the uh, Samuel, thank you, Carol, uh, she eventually has Samuel, uh, who becomes the great prophet of, of the early kings of Israel. And so while there's great resonance between what Mary sings here and what Hannah sings then, there's also resonance between what Mary sings here and what uh, Peter says on the day of Pentecost. There's also great resonance here between what Mary says and what the first martyr, Thomas, says as he's about to be stoned. This little song, the Magnificat, this prophetic song that Mary, this 14-year-old girl sings under the unction, that's an, old test, that's an old word, unction, of the Holy Spirit, carries through the narrative of Luke and Acts to kind of set the stage and set the tone. Now, what I want you to pay attention to most this morning is that Mary is speaking specifically about what it looks like in the world when God is at work. She's speaking about what it looks like when the Messiah comes, but we can take that and kind of zoom out on that picture, and we can just say, this is what it looks like when God is at work. And so this morning, I just want to draw a few uh, brief, because we have the children with us, a few brief observations of what it looks like when God was at work, but it looks like when God is at work in our hearts and in our community, but also when he is working through us as we move towards our neighbors. So, the first thing that Mary talks about, and the first thing we realize about what happens when God is at work, is that God uses unlikely people when he is at work. God uses unlikely people. Now, the pastor and theologian, a guy named Robert Capon, puts it in a way that I think is really easy for us to understand. Capon says that God works with left-handed power, with left-handed power. You see, the world is structured and ordered by right-handed power, right-handed power, the kind of power that we think actually gets stuff done, right? It's the direct-to-the-point type of power. It's straight-line strength and authority. But God's work does not use kings or military generals to get his kingdom work done, does it? He uses 14-year-old girls and post-menopausal women. This is who God uses. In verse 48, we re hear Mary say this, For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, for whom now on all generations will call blessed. God's power is not right-handed power. It's left-handed power. He uses ordinary, 
and overlooked things to confound the wisdom and power of the world. And so this morning, do you feel underqualified? Do you feel maybe a little insecure that you lack the necessary skills to do the things that God might have you do? Are you too old? (laughs) Don't raise your hand. Are you too young? Do you have insecurities and fears? You are a perfect candidate to be used of God. In part because God wants to make it perfectly clear that you are not the one that did the great things, right? But you are not disqualified. You are perfectly positioned. All all that is required of you in order to be used of God, when God is at work in your life and through your life, is that you have the humility, like Mary, to hear and respond, to be obedient. But So that's all it requires. God uses overlooked and unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. But what type of purposes is it that God wants to accomplish, both in your life and in our community? See, this is point number two. When God partners... Uh, When God is at work, he partners with the humble, and he elevates the overlooked. This is what it looks like when God is at work. I think in our minds, when we think about what it means for God to use us powerfully, we think that that means he's going to make us president, right? Or he's going to make us captain of the football team or something. He's going to put us in a powerful position so that we can then make the big decisions that move the needle, right? This is what we think about. But that's right-handed power, isn't it? That's that's about forcing the, the situation. God is not in the business of putting us in uh, tremendous positions like this that in order to use right-handed power. When we think about God using us, we think we very often think about God using us the same way that Uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, thought about God using them when they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, when you're in your glory, can we be on your right and your left, right? Can we be your secretary of state and general of the army? And what does Jesus say? You don't know what you ask for, right? Because we know in just a few chapters later when Jesus is on the cross, there are two people at his right and at his left. And those are not positions that any of us would ask for are they? And yet, when, when Jesus uses us, it is not an opportunity to ascend the corporate ladder of the kingdom. We are his disciples, and we do get to sit at his right and at his left. But when God is at work in our lives, it will not often look like a promotion. It will often look like service. And specifically, it will look like service to those in need, to those who are poor in spirit and poor in money. Here's what Mary sings in verse, beginning in verse 50. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. You see, God works not from the top down. 
And this is a fundamental reality of the kingdom. God does not work from the top down. He works from the bottom up. And he works this way because he is establishing a kingdom that is diametrically opposed to the kingdoms of this world. Not only is the kingdom of God uh, different than the kingdoms of this world, it operates in a totally different way. And the power that we think we need to attain in order to force people into a certain type of behavior is not at all the way God works. God comes to us in the person of Jesus as a servant to teach us what it looks like to be participants in his kingdom, to be servants just like him. And this is what Jesus does, right, in his ministry. To make it perfectly clear that it is not about this right-handed power Jesus comes, and he does not go to kings and princes. He does eventually stand before them, but it's right before they kill him. He walks around the desert for a while. He does most of his ministry on the outskirts of Judea. He literally places his hands on the sick. He demolishes religious structures that keep people oppressed. He calls to the hungry and to the broken, and he feeds them and he clothes them and he cares for them. He invites children. Children in the first century were not looked upon very, very positively because they couldn't contribute to society. And yet he says, if you're going to come to me, you have to be like one of these. He gives discarded women dignity and honor. Jesus is the fulfillment of Mary's prophetic, prom prophetic song. You see, when God works in the world, when he partners with us, he, uh, he uses the humble to elevate the looked, looked over, the overlooked. And when God uses you, this is what will happen. Because as God uses you, you will seem... Uh, you will see the less fortunate and the overlooked and the marginalized, and you, he, God will use you to raise them up and to honor them. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. We'll see the kingdom of God established in and amongst ourselves, not in the powerful, but in the most unlikely of people. When God uses you, he will use you to love and to serve and to bless the overlooked. This is what it means for God to be at work in our lives. Mary makes this quite clear. And in this place, in that place, we are able to see the beauty and the hope and the goodness of the kingdom of God. You see, just, for, just for, by way of example, this is why the Christian church invented things like the hospital, Right? Because we found, because early Christians realized that the, the beauty of the kingdom would spring up from the sick and not from the well. That, that the, this message of the kingdom would first take up root with those who are overlooked and then it would spread all throughout the world. You see, part of the reason I think I'm convinced that this is the way that the kingdom of God spreads through the overlooked is because the looked at don't think they are in need of anything. Those with power and authority believe that they are all right. And yet the message of Jesus comes to all of us. And we must, again, be humble enough, humble enough 
to hear it and to receive it. And like Mary, to say, may it be as you say unto me. And so that's number two. When the kingdom of God is at work in our lives, it elevates the overlooked. And the third thing this morning is that God's story finds its fulfillment in Jesus. The third thing we learn, just practically speaking, from from Mary's song is that God's story finds its fulfillment in Jesus. I said it earlier, but Mary's song lays the blueprint for what the ministry and life of Jesus is actually going to look like in the Gospels. In chapter 6, he actually, in chapter 6, he actually heals people of Luke's gospel. And in chapter 9, he is feeding, he's literally, literally feeding the hungry. But the importance of this passage and the importance that it has at the beginning of Luke's gospel, as much as it's setting up everything that Jesus is going to do in the coming pages of Luke's gospel, the reality is that what, G- what Mary is saying here, while revolutionary and earth-shattering, is also honestly quite simple. Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of the cosmos and the fulfillment of our own personal stories. I was uh, listening this week to a story about uh, men in America, right? Men in America, and uh, rates of loneliness and opioid addiction are on the rise in America amongst men in my age demographic. And they were diving into that, to that, those numbers to see what it is about uh, men in America in the uh, between the ages of like 28 and 55 uh, that's causing so many of them to feel hopeless. And what they came to the conclusion was is that these men are devoid of relationships. They're lonely. In in men within that age demographic that were surveyed, uh, fewer fewer than half said they had more than two close friends. And while uh, while that can be devastating, the, the reality is is that without close relationships, we don't have meaning and purpose because we don't have a story that we're living into without a community around us like a church or a family or friends. We don't have a story that gives our lives meaning and purpose, and thus we are incredibly, incredibly lonely. But Jesus comes into this picture, and and Jesus fulfills not just the story of Israel, but the story of our individual lives as well. You see, what we need whether you're a man between the ages of 28 and 55 or whether you're in some other uh, demographic in the room today. The truth of the matter is, is that we all need a story that, that makes sense of our lives. And the, and the best story ever told, the truest story I think any of us can live, is the story that coheres and makes most sense under the lordship of King Jesus. You see, we were created to be a people who live the story of Jesus. Mary says that the whole, uh, the whole story of Israel and the whole story of history pivots on this person, Jesus. And the question for us this morning is, is that the pivot point of our own lives? Is Jesus the pivot point at which your whole, the whole story of your life finds its balance or its turning?
You know, you see, <laughs> you see, too often, too often we've built structures and systems and lives, our own personal little kingdoms that don't pivot on Jesus. They pivot on career success, right? They pivot on the way that people perceive us in public. They pivot on, on our happiness or our physical health, all things that will be fleeting at some point in our lives. But if our life's story is founded on the person of Jesus, if the whole of our lives coheres under the head that is Christ, our story begins to make beautiful sense. And our lives are able to take on a meaning and significance that I don't think we ever knew they could. You see, the Mary, if Mary's song teaches us anything, it's that our individual lives have to, must be, uh, cohere within the story of Jesus. And in that place, we find fullness of joy and hope. You know, one of the things that's so shocking to me about this story of these two women in, very, in a very unlikely circumstance that meet together, both Mary and Elizabeth, is just the unbridled joy that they experience together. You know, the, the text tells us that when Elizabeth sees Mary, John the Baptist, who it's in her womb, is moved by the Holy Spirit, and he leaps for joy. These women were in a situation that was going to be, in some ways, very difficult. And yet joy was the abundant overflow of their lives. Joy was the abundant overflow of their lives. You know, there's a movement amongst Christians, and I'm for this movement, to talk about the importance of lament, right, and mourning and those types of things, because that's a part of the Bible, right? Lamentations is a book in the Bible, and it's important that we know how to lament. And I think that's important and good. But I, but I don't want to look away from the fact or underemphasize the reality that in this passage of Scripture, the overabundant response to the presence of Jesus in Mary's life and in the world is unfettered joy from a woman in a difficult situation. And so it is possible, I believe, in the midst of all of our brokenness, in the midst of our difficulty, to access joy. It is a fruit of the Spirit, and it is a natural byproduct of a life lived under the headship of Jesus. It really is. And so often, I think, we're scared or maybe just a little nervous to emphasize joy as a fruit of the Spirit because we believe that, like, because we experience our life is so difficult and we think that joy might let us down. Now, I'm not saying that joy is just always happiness. It's not an effervescent bubbliness that you have to carry into the room all the time. But it is a through-going, deep-seated reality in our lives. But it is only accessible, and I mean this, it is only accessible when we see that Jesus is the purpose, the end, the telos of our lives. And in that place, we can access a kind of joy that is unspeakable. Unspeakable. Would you stand with me this morning? So this morning, as we conclude our family service, and I don't go too long because we had little ones uh, who are apparently already writing notes about what they didn't like about my message up here on the front row. Okay, great. Uh, as we conclude, would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning? Yeah.
And as you bow your head, would you just uh, take an internal inventory of your life? If this, this Christmas season you have felt hurried and worried and concerned, if this year the weight of the world seems to have stacked up on top of you, and joy seems as though it is an emotion that has been uh, lacking, to say the least, it is possible this morning that Jesus wants to give you his joy that he wants to fill your heart and and your mind with the joy of his coming into the world so that you know, so that you know that your life is not the sum total of the things you do or the accomplishments you stacked up, but rather your life is precious because Jesus loves you. And your life can have meaning and purpose because Jesus has come into the world to save you and make you a part of his kingdom of love and peace and joy. And so, wherever you are this morning, in an attitude of prayer, if you're lacking joy, would you ask Jesus for more joy? If you're lacking peace, would you ask Jesus for the peace that passes all understanding? If you lack hope, would you ask Jesus to give you the hope that is available to you in the gospel? And that that would carry you through this Christmas season. Not just clinging to the, to the fleeting fun that we're going to have over the next number of days. But to the deep well of significance that's present in the person of Jesus. Let's pray together, shall we, to that end. Father, we love you. And we pray this morning that you would fill those who are lacking joy with an abundance of joy. That you would fill... Uh, fill those who are lacking peace with an abundance of peace, that you would fill those who are lacking hope with an abundance of hope this morning, and that that infilling that occurs by the Holy Spirit would carry us into this next year of our lives. Jesus, we pray that you would have your way in and through us, that you would help us to see the places where you are at work in the world, that you would help us to be your hands and feet in the community this week, that we would not overlook the overlooked, but that we would see what you were doing via your spirit in the lives of the overlooked, that we would walk into our community with the power to serve rather than the power to control, and that everything we say and that we do would lead people back to Jesus. Jesus, we give you our hearts this morning, and we give you our lives And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make this Christmas season the most significant of our lives. Not because we get a PlayStation 5 or 12 or whatever number it is, but because you are the center of it. And we pray it all in that name, in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Thanks for being at church today. Merry Christmas. Uh, Hey, one more. Hey, don't leave. Dana. Uh, four o'clock Christmas Eve. We'd love to see you. Go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.